Hello and welcome to another episode of Total Reboot New Releases, baby. This is the podcast where we look at some of the movies that are arriving in cinemas or on streaming right now that we are excited to discuss. The movie that we are talking about today is currently in cinemas across Australia right now. It just received four Academy Award nominations for the year 2022, including Best Director, Best Picture, Best adapted screenplay and of course best international feature the movie is drive my car my name is lexi toliopoulos and joining me on this review is one of my favorite film critics in australia you can find their review for this movie in fact on dark horizons one of the greatest and earliest film review websites on the freaking internet it's mr blake howard how are you doing today mate hey brother yeah i'm great thank you so much uh glad to be back uh with the reboot rats talking new releases it's super fun and yeah i mean as soon as you said would you like to talk about riyasuke Hamaguchi's drive my car i'm like you just name the time baby i'm i'm ready let's mm-hmm. go I thought we had to do it. We actually recording this on the day that the nominations came through. Yes. And uh, we were even deciding, like, Cam and I were like, will we get to squeeze a new release in this week or we'll just hold it off and do another new release in a couple of weeks' time? But seeing those freaking Oscar nominations yeah. come in uh, for a movie that I did not really anticipate to be in the race. I did not see that beautiful vintage 1980s, 1990s era sub <laughs> driving in the same race as some of these bigger, uh, more prestigious pictures. Uh, I really, really thought we should touch on it. And I loved your review that you wrote um, in December when this film like was kind of doing some more international circuits, some more festival circuits. I saw it just before then during the Sydney Film Festival. And you and I have not really talked about it together yet. No. We have sent the text messages that are just like, <laughs> drive my car, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's about the extent of the text. Yeah, look, I think I... One of the texts I said to you is like, this movie feels like, you know, it's made on a raw nerve. Uh, I remember just watching it, being completely immersed by it. And it's, it is able to conjure such levels of anticipation and tension and like, oh my God, what is this thing going to do? Where is this thing going to go? And, but at the same time, it, it functions at this weird, perfectly glacial pace that it's just mm. taking you on this way. And you don't kind of realize how much the mounting tension is going to work because ultimately it's like a personal drama um, really deeply about two people who are getting to know each other. Um, you know, one of them um, um, being Hitotoshi and Nidajima, um, who's who plays Kafuku, who's the main theater actor guy in this movie. Uh, and then... As the movie progresses, we move along uh, to, I guess, what you would call like his sounding board, his incredible, uh, his incredible quiet, diminutive driver that becomes a huge part of his entire life. And when I was watching this, it's Toko Amura plays Watari, who's his driver. I was just watching these two people basically have this ongoing confessional. And I just mm. never knew where it was going to go. And the further that we got into the story, the more that I was just completely transfixed. And I was just like, 
This was the perfect movie for me because all I got was like your validating text. So I got a couple of my friends in the States saying the same thing. Film, film critics I love and dearly respect going, you have to see this movie. And the minute I saw it, I was just like, this is it. This is maybe one of the best movies I've seen of this or any year. Oh, Blake, I just felt a tingle. In the <laughs> podcast industry, what I just felt was a freaking tingle. I am so excited to start talking deeply about Ryosuke Hamaguchi's Drive My Car. So let's have a little taste of the trailer and get into our discussion on the film. Tsumadis. <laughs> Ryosuke Hamaguchi's Drive My Car is in cinemas across Australia now. The film tells a story of an aging widowed actor who seeks a chauffeur. The actor turns to his go-to mechanic who ends up recommending a 20-year-old girl. Despite their initial misgivings, a very special relationship develops between the two. I think that is a very simple synopsis for something that is so powerfully and deeply emotional this film this film is one of those things that is like you said in your little introduction um i love that you mentioned that glacial pace because this is a slow film and it is all about the things that simmer beneath the surface and as they kind of bubble up to the top without boiling over it's the simmer the whole way through this film runs for about three hours yeah Something that I find quite intimidating when launching into a film, especially at a film festival, which yeah. is where how I saw this film. At the end of this film's three-hour runtime, Blake, how did you feel? And maybe even more precisely, what did you feel? Uh, I, I was just blown away. I was like stunned. I, you know, uh, it would be a surprise to everyone listening that I can actually be rendered speechless. And I was genuinely speechless. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Lex. I didn't know how to feel about these emotions because I think one of the things that is so wonderful about, uh, Hamaguchi's, uh, drive my car is that, and the terrific writing from the screenwriter, uh, mm. Takamasa O who adapted the Murakami story is that as you're progressing along the story, you watch a man who he himself is kind of rendered frozen. He doesn't act on the emotions that he's feeling. Mm. He sees something in, you know, the latter parts of his relationship. You know, at the beginning of this film, we get to see really the context, the scene set that almost happens before the synopsis that you just mentioned. And it happens for a long time in the movie. You really get to live in Kafuku's life. And when you live with him, I think what is so deeply relatable about this movie is all the times you have imagined yourself wanting to say that thing, wanting to have that comeback, wanting to have that fight with someone, if you're in a relationship mm. with them, wanting to, whatever it is, friendships, relationships, those sorts of things and wanting to say those things. And it, and it is so withholding and really gets you to sit in that feeling mm. of, I didn't get a chance to do that. I didn't get a chance to say the things I wanted to say. I didn't get a chance. And then... When Kafuku decides to go off and do this play, Uncle Vanya, which we'll talk more about, which forms a huge part of the, the narrative, you're just watching this guy starting to get another opportunity, I don't know, for like redemption, for some kind of mm. like, I'm going to have a conflict, I'm going to have this catharsis, I'm going to have this confrontation. 
And when the movie, and there's no spoilers here, but the movie just sets you up for this thing and you are completely sideswiped by how it actually deals with conflict. And that's what blew me away because then you actually realize what the movie is. It's about Mm. living with the biggest mistakes you could possibly make in your life. And the only way through is this kind of kinship that you can form and this kind of confessional relationship that you can have with people because the only way to get over it is to kind of drive yourself straight through it. So the whole metaphor of the movie and the car and or this have someone else drive you. Yeah, literally. You yeah. If you've got a Glock, <laughs> if, you, if you're getting a glaucoma and you can't see which the character is. So mm. yeah, for me at the end of the movie, I, I was just stunned. I was just like, I couldn't believe it. It was so much to process. It took me so much time for, you know, fortunately for me, um, as a as a critic who sometimes works ac- uh, across different time zones, I occasionally get screeners to things. So I watched this thing mm. in one big immersive session, and then I was able to revisit it a number of times, um, mm. even just in parts when I was thinking about writing the review. And so I was just watching it and going, "I'm this is something that I'm going to savor." It was just amazing yeah. and and it's just special. And then you do that thing where you're like, "Okay, Hamaguchi, one of my guys." I need to see everything he's ever done. That's exactly how I felt. Uh, I-, I had never seen a Hamaguchi film before. Immediately, I was so deeply and genuinely, and I don't use this word very often when I'm talking about films. I do hyperbolize a lot when I'm talking about films. I am aware of that, listeners. <laughs> but I very rarely use this. Just word. wait for the co- wait for the comments, bitch. You use yeah. that word all the time. <laughs> yeah, I reckon you could you could probably just command F and you'll see it on every episode of Total Reboot ever. Um, but I was so deeply and genuinely profoundly moved by this film. Mm. Um, and I had never seen a Hamaguchi film before. Two weeks later, I was able to see uh, the other film that he made this year. In 2021, he had two releases, which was a film called The Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is a th- three-short film anthology film um, that are all thema- very loosely thematically connected. I love that film as well, but I would say Drive My Car is just one of the most somberly moving experiences I've ever had in the cinema. And I did not anticipate it, it was such a late addition to my film festival schedule. I It wasn't on my radar at all until I started seeing some whispers about it. And the thing that really, like beyond just like the human expression and like the existentialism that is kind of simmering throughout this film in like this really powerfully connective way like this is a film that allows you to feel connection to the other people that live on this planet you know like <laughs> what, can, what more can be said about praising a film to say something like that but the way that it plays with the story structure techniques that are the language of cinema and the language of film that we as audience members understand, I found genuinely like master strokes. Yes. Because I don't want to give too much away about this film, but I will say stuff that uh, it leads to the premise of this movie, which the premise is it's a theater director and a, th- a theater director slash actor who um, goes to uh, like a, a theater festival in a different city and he 
puts on like a play. And the plays that he's known to put on for are like adaptations of the classics, like Chekhov. So he's putting on Uncle Vanya and the dramaturgy uh, element, the dramaturgical element of his plays that make them unique of his productions are that actors can come from all around the world and they each speak the parts translated into their natural language. So there's Chinese actors, there's Russian actors, there's American actors, and they all speak in their native tongue. And it is all about the rhythms and learning the rhythms of the play and about how we express ourselves through communication that are not exactly linguistic communication. So that's the premise. But the premise is also he is a widower. The uh, first hour of the movie is his life before the premise of the film begins. (laughs) Now, usually in a film, that is the first 10% of a movie. So if it's a 100-minute movie, it's the first 10 minutes where we see the world of the protagonist before the inciting incident where the premise kicks off and we see our hero begin their journey. We have this whole one hour where we have the entire life where we see details of his life. We understand the geography of his home. We see the relationship and the bond that he has with his wife and how their relationship has this deep connection beyond sexuality, but sexuality plays a key for key part in their relationship together and the difficulties in the outside world that affects their relationship. And there is obviously a moment where his wife dies and there is a much, it feels very sudden, it feels so surprising. And we have so much of what Blake was talking about where there is this element of deep regret and repression of this character where they have, difficulty expressing themselves to convey their point of view and to convey their conflict with their partner at risk of whatever. And um, when we have this moment where the funeral happens uh, for this character and we're about to like lead into where the premise of the film, the next scene is going to be, okay, the kickoff point for the movie. That is when the title card of Drive My Car comes up. Yes. And I found that to be such an elegant expression of what this movie is doing, how this movie kind of creates this, it uses its runtime to create a long form lived in experience for the audience members to fully come to the same, to be fully immersed in the world of this protagonist and the world of these characters to deeply understand the minutiae and nuance of how they live their life and how they express themselves. And I really don't think I had ever experienced anything at all in my film-going life (laughs) as powerfully as just that moment of realizing the first hour that I just witnessed was the backstory to the film I'm about to watch. <laughs> yes. It's, like, it, the only other time it comes to mind is something like Once Upon a Time in the West where the fucking opening, t- <laughs> where the opening title comes at the very end of the movie. Yeah, it's... The thing about it is, and what Lex is tagging on so much is so incredible, is if you the more you learn about uh, Hamaguchi's process, Lex is going to know, and any reboot rats are going to know, like, one of Lexi's most, I mean... 
a, a Greek god himself, his idol, like the Cassavetes, right? Mm-hmm. Hamaguchi the Cass. idolizes Cassavetes. And he talks about his films and ability to, they just drag you into these situations and you're, you're like a silent witness to watching it. And so he unlocked this whole movie. If you read some of the great interviews that he talks, he talks about this whole movie is like the entire process that Kafuku sort of imposes on this theater troupe of consistently learning these languages and uh, learning the script in these multiple languages, saying the script thousands and thousands of times over and again so that it essentially becomes innate. He's actually his process when he rehearses his films. He rehearses them with an inch of their lives in order to do that. So he brings himself to this movie in so many ways. He brings his influences. He brings himself. And the character and the director are both bringing themselves to this because Kafuku's big conflict is... He doesn't want to make plays anymore. It's incredibly difficult after his wife's death to even conceive of it. And the whole point of Drive My Car and one of the big things and why the car is such a quintessential element to his entire life is that Otto, his wife, who's played by Rika uh, Kirishima, she basically speaks every other part in the play for him in order for him to practice his script. And so he hears her voice. And so this is one of the last tapes she ever made, a performance of Uncle Vanya that was unrealized. And the town that Alexi's talking about that he goes to to put on this other play is Hiroshima, which is all the more poetic because it is a town that is literally built on the ashes of one of the most you know, profound losses of human life ever. And it's this place that exists over this. It's like you know that old poltergeist thing of like you can't build a house on a, an ancient burial ground or whatever the case may be or the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. And so what you see is this thing of like, Life goes on on the ashes of profound loss. And so he rebuilds his life just like Hiroshima was rebuilt with this play, with this performance going through. And with this sounding board of his incredible driver, who is usually the most laconic and like non-speaking character, Waitari. And whenever she speaks... It almost knocks you for six. It's like being beaten with a baseball bat because what she says is so like the profound grief that she's felt in her life. And he starts to find a kinship in her in so many ways about how driving has become her coping mechanism, has become uh, this, you know, this thing that she's anchored to for the rest of her life. And so, yeah, for me, it's not only profundity of like understanding story structure on such an innate level and challenging audiences with it because the movie works, you know, would probably work if it was just the two hours that we've seen, it would probably work. Yeah. But the ambition of, doing it to say that the prologue is in and of itself almost like a vignette of a whole movie in and of itself and then two hours to actually unpack the character and tell the story, which is more directly adapted from the um, Murakami uh, short story. I just was like, I couldn't believe it. It was one of those things. um, There's another movie like, I don't know if the Reboot Rats have ever heard of it or seen of it, but like, you know, this year another big adaption was obviously the tragedy of Macbeth. That's not my favorite Mm. Shakespeare. There's this great... My favorite Shakespeare is Julius Caesar, and there's a terrific Taviana Brothers oh, movie called I know them. Caesar Must Die. Caesar Must Die. I love that movie. I I literally was watching this film, and I thought, man, i got to see Caesar Must Die again. I love that <laughs> film. But that's, that's exactly the feeling I got, because just to give you the premise of Caesar Must Die, mm-hmm. firstly, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's Julius Caesar. It's, but the Taviani Brothers, who are famous, two famous Italian directors, take their cameras in a very sort of documentary style into a maximum security Roman prison and cast prisoners to play the characters in the play. Which It's been it, a minute since I've seen it, Blake. It is it actually a documentary, right? The movie starts like it's a documentary. 
So it's like it's an excuse to go into this prison and start telling a documentary story that is talking about prisoners and then then putting on a play. But it almost, just like Hamaguchi's film, relinquishes its form and becomes the play with these mm. real guys and, re- and their characterizations representing the turmoil that led them to all these bad decisions in their own lives. And it is a transcendent piece of filmmaking. And it's not really yeah. since Caesar Must Die that I've ever seen anything that like challenged. You're literally watching a documentary about prisoners putting on a play. Like it could be some silly thing. Mm. And then it's like, no, actually the only way that we can truly speak to their experience is for this to become the play. And then the prison becomes the stage. And so instead of them like filming the, the final play on the stage, it's like the prison, the walls of each room, the yards, the hallways, they become the play. And then the, the mm. profundity of the characters is expanded upon in ways that are just unfathomable. And so for me, that's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was just watching this and hearing you talk about it. I'm just like, I, I have to watch this movie again. Like I have to watch yeah. it again. And I think it's very similar to that Taviani Brothers film, Season Must Die, in the way that the text of the play that they are adapting, Uncle Vanya by Chekhov, the, I'm loosely familiar with it. I remember I studied a little bit of uh, Uncle Vanya when I was in like uh, university, but we mainly focus on the Cherry Orchard, the other yeah. Chekhov play. Um, but it is in like that great cinematic tradition of, I'm also thinking about stuff like, uh, oh my God, Vanya on 42nd street, the, yes. the Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory film, uh, that is like part of a trilogy that they did with like my dinner with Andre and stuff where the text of the play begins to, in fact, like express many of the emotions that the characters are going through in the reality of the film itself, like the world around the play, the world around their private lives and stuff. Hidetoshi Nashijima's character being the director of this play in casting like characters that he's had conflict with in real life in roles that they perhaps are <laughs> not genuinely prepared to tackle and they're perhaps cast too young to type or something. And, um, it becomes like this really, like the you you really see it on the edge of your seat, where you're like, I cannot wait to see how this play turns out, and I can't wait to see the scenes being performed by these characters, and I can't wait to see how that actually turns out because it does so much to develop the passion and the idea within the audience's hearts and minds of the job of uh, the dramaturge and the job of a director in theatre and like how we even adapt the classics and how we do bring the classics to a new audience with uh, modern context or modern technique to say something different or to express different human aspects of humanity that like Chekhov or Shakespeare ever intended. And... I really think that it's so interesting because the play almost feels like a minor aspect of this movie. <laughs> yet it is still the crux of like the entirety of the action around the film. Yeah, there's in within the uh, within Kafuku's construction of the film, there's this ongoing 
like repetition, repetition, repetition so many times throughout their rehearsals. And Yurin Park plays a mute actor named Lee Yoon Ah in the movie. And in that like massively repetitive rehearsal process, she's signing her lines in the movie because if you're watching the play and a couple of times you see these little flashes in Drive My Car of the actual play being performed, there are kind of subtitles in multilingual subtitles that are happening all the time so that people, as people are speaking and going, dipping in and out of different languages, you see them speak it. And so then there's this other element of a pivotal character in the play as you're watching it be performed towards the conclusion of the movie can't speak. And so after all this repetition and all this focus on the linguistic specificity of this thing and this repetition and driving in this 1990 red Saab an hour from his place back to the playhouse with a Atari driving the car and listening to Otto, his passed away wife's voice. Like some of the most profound moments are then delivered by a person who can't speak because they change the proximity. They, they, she becomes closer and then it's, it's, it almost like transcends language and and I don't think it's unintentional. That's the other thing that's miraculous is that you see these mm. things and you wax lyrical about them. And I've certainly done that in my review and every person I've spoken to to recommend it. But I'm then just like, I just can't believe that it's it's when you see a film like this by a guy that you are completely uninitiated mm-hmm. with, you're just like, where did this person come from? How did they do this? I don't understand. And since seeing this and just reading about some of the other films that uh, Hamaguchi has made, they sound like things like from another existence. (laughs) Like he made a film called Happy Hour, and I believe it's still available to watch on the Criterion channel if you're a subscriber, that is five hours long. Yeah. And I know that I will be watching it (laughs) as soon as I possibly can get a five-hour allotted window in my life (laughs) to watch a movie. Um, uh, And I just find the way that he constructs films to be so interesting from the two that I've seen now. Because Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is... Borderline feels like something like Wild Tales, where yes. uh, that Argentinian film from about like five or six years ago that is also an anthology film with kind of a black comedic bent. There is dark humor or humor of manners and humor of uh, interaction and how like one can politely interact with people and still get the outcomes they want in a conversation um, in that film that I find like so interestingly in closer to oh god like borderline sketch comedy compared to like (laughs) yes the deep humanity and existentialism that is slowly dripping in its display on uh in drive my car and the other thing that i feel like i would love to highlight before we start wrapping things up is we've talked about like the feelings that this film creates. We talk about the way that this film progresses and the way that it's structured. Yet we haven't talked about like any of the aesthetic quality of this film and the photography of this film. And I would really 
put this out there, that there are moments in this film that I would say rival the visual grandeur of one of the other uh, most talked about movies this year, uh, which I would say is Denis Villeneuve's Dune. And there are moments of this film that I would say capture the exact same kind of grandeur of seeing something that you've never seen before. And there's like a scene where we kind of go to like, I don't even really know how to describe it, but it's a giant like trash compactory Uh, factory industrial zone and it feels like something from the creation of science fiction or the world of the future where we're looking at uh, I don't know if dystopian is the right word but we're looking at like the nuts and bolts that keep our society together and it's shot in this way that feels so beautiful. And so parts of society that keep us running that you've never seen before. And you've never seen <laughs> shot beautifully before. But it, it kind of, to me, expressed everything that like, no matter how smooth the surface is and no matter how much we uh, keep ourselves in check and keep ourselves at like the simmer and keep ourselves at like, some kind of proper decorum there is still so much mechanism behind every movement and every human thought and every human interaction that kind of churns and bucks away to keep us at some level of presentable elegance as (laughs) we do see it and i found that to just be another thing that I never anticipated this movie would go to, even as I'm watching it. There, it also has a shot. So much of the movie is set in small spaces, you know, conference rooms for rehearsals, occasionally a stage, but a lot of the movie is in a car, you know, and so there's only so many. We've seen every way that a car can be shot, you know, every single yeah. cinematic trick. And so, so much of the movie just plays with authenticity and, and, and keep capturing really organic moments. Watari's, you know, literally driving the car. That's uh, Tokamira's Watari. And uh, in, in the back, Kafuku's, you know, sitting there, they're having conversations. It's moving around. It's using sound. And really, you know, they're taking these drives and he's capturing these moments and they're so elegant. But then there's one of the climactic moments of the film where it actually embraces formal romance in a way, like mm. to, to portray an exchange in a car that really becomes like pure like cinematic expression. It does all the things that you see in like another film that was nominated for best direction this year, like Spielberg's West side story. It like conveys these faces in all of their poetry and beauty and magnetism in this way that would be impossible. Like it's totally artificial when the movie has been deeply authentic, but the way that it's presented, it's just another element where you're like, Holy shit. Like how did he like, how, it's another way that the movie folds and twists and 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 just plays with that grammar that um, so much of the movie like it sets the rules of what it's going to do and then it and then it breaks them at the most opportune moment like stu- formally stunning movie. To wrap up our discussion, I thought I'd read uh, the final sentence of your review, Blake, which I think is such a beautiful way to cap off even just talking about this film. By the end of Drive My Car, you're left staggered by the raw truth, the metaphysical, transcendent power of forgiveness. So take the wheel and share the load. Drive My Car says it best. We must live our lives. Blake, dare I even ask what your star (laughs) rating is at the end of this review? 
It's five out of five. It's four out of four. It's 10 out of 10. It's a hundred out of a hundred. It's whatever the maximum score, allowable score that I could give this thing is. But yeah, absolutely five out of five. Incredible film. Like star ratings almost feel like it doesn't do it justice. Like you want it to burst through the edges of the star rating. But if you guys need it, it's five out of five. Absolutely. The most wholehearted uh, recommendation. I think there is something in this for really everyone. I would have to agree. This is one of the most splendid times I've ever had staring at a freaking rectangle in my life. Um, I <laughs> we, I am going to nearly join you. I'm going to give it four and a half stars. Um, I really think that this is one of the best things you can possibly see in cinemas, uh, not just right now, but for the time that you're sitting here breathing on Earth. Do not be at all intimidated by this runtime. This is a film that holds you. It holds not just your attention, but it holds you there with it. The film is Raisuki Hamaguchi's Drive My Car. It is in cinemas right now. It just hit four Academy Award nominations, which Ooh. feels very, very special for a film like this. Uh, Blake Howard, thank you so much for joining me on this review for this podcast. I'm so happy we got to do it. Um, not only is your review for Drive My Car beautifully written and up there on Dark Horizons, a great film website, uh, you also, people on this podcast know you very well as a great podcaster themselves from One Hit Minute Productions. You are currently wrapping up the Zodiac Chronicle. Yes, I am. And uh, you've got a great one coming on the horizon, which is, of course, Podcaster and Commander, as previously announced, a podcast dissecting and chronicling the world of Peter Weir's unheralded masterpiece, which is Master and Commander. But also you and I talk about Blu-rays like almost every week or two on that podcast on a little sub-podcast called The Blues Brothers. Yeah, look, Lex, we have so much fun because we're so fortunate to be who to have found each other. Two ethnic mm-hmm. kids who have an unhealthy relationship with physical media. And it's such a delight for us to dive into. We, we get in the weeds. We're not just talking about movies. You might hear us wax lyrical about that, but we get into the special features, baby. We listen to some commentary tracks. We'll marvel at uh, the transfers, you know? So yeah, that's a super fun thing. Um, and I've got a special one, like for, you know, folks really appreciate, you know, uh, the lovely things you said about my review. I've got a couple of things that the reboot rats might like. I've got a really cool column on a site called Vague Visages. Um, which is called The Art of the Heist. Uh, The first movie we talked about was aptly David Mamet's Heist with Gene Hackman and Dora Lindo, which is an absolute ripper. Um, And the next two bad boys that are coming up on that, if you guys want to have a look in the coming weeks as you're listening to this, are Spike Lee's Inside Man and Steven Soderbergh's Logan Lucky. Very excited for those. So some very yeah, the sec- reboot rats will go crazy because Spike Lee's my guy and Soderbergh's Cammy's guy. <laughs> so hopefully you guys dig those. Um, really dive into the heist movie, uh, you know, the entire heist movie package, unpacking all the elements of heist movie stuff. So those are two contemporary ones I really love, but there's going to be a stack more coming up on there and a monthly column. So when you don't want to listen to me and maybe one time you want to read me, um, that would be awesome. Blake, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, later on this week, we are going to be continuing our Millennium Mind fuck mini series with one of the kind of sleeper hits of this genre cycle we're talking about a career defining oddity which is richard linklater's 
adaptation of Philip K. Dick's A Scanner Darkly. Uh, we're joined by Justin Hamilton for that episode. It is a great yarn. Have a listen to it. It's coming out on Friday. In the meantime, you can head over to patreon.com slash totalreboot and sign up for just five bucks a month to get access to bonus content from Cameron and I and help support this show. And in the meantime, let us know if there's other kind of films coming out in the horizon or that have just come out maybe we missed them towards the end of last year that you'd like us to perhaps hit up for a new releases review i'm thinking that i'm thinking the battinson has to be it we've got it i'm I'm, I'm shouting out as a fellow reboot rat wow battinson has to be here i want to hear you and cam talking about bobby pat i want to hear you talking about Mm -hmm. that and I'm hearing, or I'm just claiming, um, that uh, someone has recut your entire Mementos uh, episode into the actual order it should have unfolded. So I'm excited <laughs> for that one. Uh, just like the guy you were talking about in that episode. It's one of my favorite digressions. The guy who's like, oh, this movie's boring if it's just cut normal. That's not the movie, like, dude. Yeah, dude. Yeah, That's dude. not the movie. It doesn't count that way. <laughs> really good DVD. Uh, I really appreciated that episode uh, for lots of yeah. DVD chatter as well. Uh, but yeah, excited. I, I love. I love this series. Um, I love all the series you guys are doing. So, and I've had. A, I've had. A, I've had. A, I've had. A, you know, I had some whispers about what it was going to be before you Raddy's heard about it. So I'm stoked that we're all we're all diving in. It's uh, it's appointment listening. So I can't wait, man. Man, thank you so much. It means a lot to get that praise from you. And I shall inflate my ego and float <laughs> off into the nether realm. So thank you so much. Uh, listeners, please do check out Drive My Car. You will not regret it. You shall have a spiritual experience like no other. Uh, enjoy your lives and please, God, praise cinema. 